0: Welcome to episode 60 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs.
1: And I'm Eloise Ross.
0: And in this episode, we'll be taking a look at one of Melbourne Queer Film Festival's highlights, Savage, and the documentary Making Montgomery Clift. But first, Nicole Kidman's new film, Destroyer.
1: Who is it? No ID, no idea. I know your whole story
0: placing our agent undercover. She'll look right enough next to our guy. If
2: we do this, we accept the consequences. Do you love me?
1: You know I do.
2: Karen Kasama directs the American crime drama film Destroyer, which stars Nicole Kidman, Toby Kebbell, Tatiana Maslany, Scoot McNary, and Sebastian Stan with a cameo from Bradley Whitford. Kidman undergoes a physical, one of her uh, trademark physical transformations in the lead role as an undercover LAPD officer who takes out the members of a gang she used to be a part of when she was undercover um, years after her case was blown. Andy, what did you make of this intense crime thriller?
0: It was very interesting. I really liked a lot about this. It was a surprisingly Raymond Chandler-esque kind of performance, I mm. thought. The, often, like in these classic detective or noir uh, stories, you'll have an, Im, like a, an impenetrable or infallible uh, hero. But in this case, she, Kismet's character is extremely fallible and does look like the sort of way you might look if you had been drinking and not eating much and just dedicating your life in this sort of way to the pursuit of a criminal or to, as, 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 on a sort of revenge fantasy. I thought the, it looked really, really amazing. I thought it was a little bit overambitious. It did try to cram an awful lot into its balling runtime, um, but there was a, a really there was a lot to like about it. There was a, a there's a particular bank robbery scene which I thought was brilliantly shot.
2: Yes, agree.
0: That sort of seems to be where Kasama is really hitting it out of
2: the park. Yeah, um, and it's such an interesting film because it blends this sort of intense genre of filmmaking, which is really well done, with this slightly more poetic sensibility, um, particularly. Towards the end of the film. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure that they quite gel. They sort of appear to be two very distinct filmmaking modes, but I appreciated them both nonetheless. I thought Kidman gives us kind of fascinating central performance here. You're right. There's actually this quote she says in um, in a flashback. The film's very good, actually, at, I thought, at aging the characters. Mm. And yeah, maybe de- almost too them.
0: good. <laughs> I uh, <would> say.
2: <laughs> yeah, we actually, I remember you saying it. Um, uh, so so we see in flashback back when she was undercover with this gang, um, she has this line with a fellow undercover um, FBI agent uh, who she sort of develops a relationship with. Well, she, sort of, she does. Uh, she says to him, well, I'm paraphrasing horrendously here, but I'm tired of not having choice or, you know, of, of living this sort of crazy existence. And you can just tell from the, what's really... I guess, uh, affecting about the film is that it then flashes forward, you know, decades later and then you can tell she's still been living in that mode. Yeah. So it's that I found really interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is a lot really that I thought was fantastic about this. Like, I wasn't expecting to be quite so much of a noir sort of drama, crime drama sort of story, but uh, a lot of that hinges, I think, on the relationships that she has and pretty much every relationship in Kidman's character, who we should call Erin Bell, I think that's her name, um, in her life has been like... Like either completely cut off or destroyed or like severely impaired by this complete dedication she has, but also that is it seems to be taken so far out of the traditional world of the crime drama that when she pulls out a badge and says I'm a cop, you're kind of being reminded that she's still a cop because she doesn't do any paperwork. There's no, I don't think she eats or uh, cleans at any stage. She's (laughs) off the books. This one, (laughs) yeah, she's totally off the books. Yeah, it's (laughs) more like a private investigator basically in disguise as a cop.
2: And there's reasons for that which are sort of revealed, which I find really interesting. I love the narrative structure of the film and, yeah, the style. I mean, look, it didn't particularly resonate for me, but I think it's ambitious enough that it's definitely worth watching.
0: Yeah, I'm really keen to see what summer does after this because clearly there's a really beautiful sort of poetic quality to this, uh, which doesn't always, I think, work. I think a lot of the times, like, the love relationship that she's meant to be having with her, one of her co-workers... Uh, early on, is a little tenuous mm-hmm. later on. Um, her relationship with her daughter is quite poor, but also that's meant to be clearly there to give her greater depth. But I just didn't feel like I, we got quite inside. We saw a lot of her. I mean, a lot of, we got a lot of appearance and got a lot of superficial... Yes, we did see a lot of her. Yeah, a lot of right, Kidman. Did we, did we get inside? I still feel like yeah. I don't know her that well, and I would have liked some yeah, more moments that right. didn't involve... She's sort of
2: in this one mode of... Sort of, yeah, she's just exhausted. so driven, like, I mean, it's exhausted yet driven,
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. She's just
2: like been. battling through the events, of the film. yeah,
0: but it does make her excitingly mortal that when she's in these sorts of situations, like a bank robbery, you're like, she could, yeah, yeah not come out of this, you know. Um, I
2: agree with you. The bank robbery was for me the highlight yeah. of the film, mm. uh, on par with Heat's bank, robbery. Mm, good call, Another yeah. Noted. I was
0: reminded a bit of a uh, uh, point break one yes yeah yeah yeah. which is not a bad thing to be reminded of at all
2: no not at all so yeah I recommend it's worth checking out particularly because this kind of crime film you don't get all yeah, that often Very so true. it's yep. worth uh, cherishing I think when it comes along and when it's as well made as this
0: Yep, cold cap recommend yep which brings us to this month's film diary the Allianz Francais Film Festival runs until April 10. Highlights include Jacques Audillard's darkly comic western The Sisters Brothers, starring Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley, which I can highly recommend. A restoration of the new wave classic Last Year at Marion Bird. Woo! Yeah, you've caught that, I imagine.
1: I have, and I must have seen it like five or six times now, and I feel like everyone probably has bits that they don't remember because... Who even knows what happens? Anyway, um, it was great. It yeah, was so The Restoration,
0: enough. was that better than other times you've seen it?
1: Well, I've only seen it on, a, like, TV, so yes.
0: Good to
2: know.
1: And Claire Denise high life.
2: Yes, high Highlife uh, It's a highlight of the program. Hey, hey. Um, uh, We're yeah. not allowed to
1: talk about it, though, because I no, haven't seen it yet. And,
2: yeah, we'll probably discuss it more in depth later. I just want to do a quick shout-out to Olivia Assayez's film Nonfiction, starring mm. Juliette Binoche a wonderful um, comedy art house girl dramedy, I would say, about um, these sort of middle-class Parisian book publisher types who all have affairs with each other and all the rest of it. Um, But in classic Assayers fashion, he takes what you imagine to be a conventional art house premise and uses it to explore something interesting. In this case, um, the technological revolution that's really upending all of our lives. So it's a really interesting film with some stunning performances. And I also want to do a quick shout-out to... Uh, look, I'll do a shout out to uh, A Faithful Man. It's it's just, it doesn't resonate whatsoever. It's very nicely made. It's quite, like on the level of craft, it's actually quite interestingly made. And he has some fun with like narrative bits and like uh, bits of, you know, almost pseudo clowning that happen through editing and stuff, which is mm. really interesting. Mm-hmm. But um, it's extremely light. It's a very light uh, love triangle. With Lily Rose Depp and Gorel himself playing the main guy. Right, okay. Um, that was, yeah, it's extremely light and inconsequential, I would say. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I definitely recommend Do you
1: non-fiction. think that's how um, Louis Garel got into the new Little Women? Oh. Through the Chalamet, Lily Rose Depp... Connection. Connection. Oh, let's
0: throw that out there. <gasps> Put some hashtags Whoa. on that. There, Did know, we just make socials. some gossip? <laughs> yep. <You> just.
2: <laughs> that is exactly how that happened. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, interesting. <laughs> Actually, Lily Rose Depp is quite good in this film. I've cool. never seen her act uh, act before. So
1: she was in another film that was at Sundance a couple of the years ago. Dancer? Maybe. It's one of Wasn't she in a weird horror, like uh. a gross out something? Anyway. Mm.
0: The, the problem with the film How good
1: are we at being a film cultural commentator, <laughs> guys? <laughs> yeah, well, we she was quite good in The Dancer,
0: I thought. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, cool.
2: Yeah, and she was great in it. But the problem with the film was I just found Garel's character like a bit of a non-entity apart from his beautiful hair. And so <laughs> it was like, why are these two women fighting over this like kind of loser it was like Woody allen is. Mm, okay it was like, kind of like a long yeah sort of in that yeah, kind right. of vein without going fully like down that path really but, cool woman with a really average boyfriend sort of situation
0: yeah right.
2: kind mm. of yeah 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 yeah. and Lily Rose Depp played this character who was obsessed with him like from a young age when she, when she was like a teenager and he was like the early 20 something you know um, and he was unaware of you know the fact that she was obsessed with him and then she grows up and he grows up and then sparks fly right
0: yeah anyway no uh, forget about that film go watch uh, non-fiction okay but is, uh, when, so when S.A.S. is like an old man dealing with technology does he do it in a lynchian way where you can just imagine the size of the numbers on his mobile phone are huge <laughs> or do you get the more idea that he's more adept at this sort of stuff
2: well no see this is really interesting because I think all of his characters have very di- in this film have very different relationships to it so you have someone who's sort of prone to saying things like Oh, twi- yeah, that's right. He's, uh, she goes, um, t- uh, tweets are like haikus, you know, which is something that you would have heard maybe in 2020. Like, it's a, quite an old...
1: Like at the beginning of Twitter. Yeah, it's quite yeah, an right.
2: old-fashioned kind of thing. But I don't... And this is what someone someone on Letterboxd I noticed cr- criticised the film for dealing in that kind of... Um, Yeah, for not being as probably original as he thinks he's doing. But my argument is, well, that's that character, right? That's not the film. Mm, And then the other characters have very different relationships. So there's an author who writes um, quite hilariously. He's sort of like this pathetic character who writes kind of in the vein of um, that. uh, Who's that Scandinavian guy who writes all about his life, my life? Like Nausgaard. He's writing like Nausgaard. Right, in that he turns all of his life into these books but he fictionalises them and he calls them auto-fiction and he gets shocked when people in his life rec- recognise themselves in the characters in his books and he's like, oh, no, but it's fiction that's inspired by real life. Oh, okay, like, right. no, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Anyway, there, he gets cancelled, quote-unquote cancelled, online and there's this huge <laughs> backlash and he's completely oblivious to this because he doesn't exist in the internet world and it doesn't affect him whatsoever. Right. Then you have someone like the woman that he's married to who is a PR advisor for a politician and she has three different devices and she's constantly online. So they all have different relationships with technology, I guess. And it's quite a complex... Uh, portrait of that, and Juliette Binoche is fantastic, sort of playing herself-ish, playing an actress um, who's like on a well-known, like, fancy um, crime show in France. It's very popular. Um, and there was a hilarious moment where there was a joke about Juliette Binoche, which involved Juliette Binoche's character. So it's <laughs> worth watching so that for that meta moment alone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> which brings us back to this week's cultural, um, this month's <laughs> cultural capital film diary. Um, Over at ACME, you can catch Rams, the latest release, from Gary Hustwit, the man behind the documentary Helvetica. Rams looks at the designer Dieter Rams, who is responsible for much of the minimalist design we take for granted today. That screens until April 9. The Indonesian Film Festival is also screening at ACME's cinemas from April 1 to 10. Highlights include the Indonesian Foreign Film Oscar submission Tura and the thriller Night Bus. And the season, Transit and the Films of Kristen Petzold, begins April 11. Highlights include Barbara, Phoenix, and his latest film that also looks at identity in the aftermath of World War Two, Transit.
1: I was so sad I missed that last year. Very yeah. keen.
2: I'm really looking forward to being able to see
0: that. Yes, he's um, a cultural capital thumbs up guy. Um, I'm legally obliged to mention that Call Me By Your Name is screening at the Astor on March 21.
2: <laughs> it is, and I'll be there. really? Yeah, of course. I, I
0: see it on that big screen. Wait, okay. March 29? 21. Oh, okay. 21. This wow. Thursday, correct? This, this Thursday, yes. correct. Uh, yes, also at the Astor, you can catch the double bill bad day at Black Rock and Key Largo on March 24. Cool. Cool. Um, and if you do go to the double bill of taxi driver and the passenger, make sure you stay until the very last shot of the passenger. And then you yeah the Penultimate Shot. Oh, sorry, thank you, Penultimate Shot. God, I love that thing. It's one of the greatest moments of the year. You can leave history. after that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Don't worry about the last shot. Don't worry shot.
0: about that. I the completely finals. forgot yeah, yeah. the last <laughs> shot.
1: To
2: be yeah, yeah. It's I mean, such an
0: amazing shot. I love that movie so much. It's this is why
2: Antonioni is my favourite director.
0: Mmm, so brilliant. Mm-hmm. Plus, you can get your fill of goth hunks with a double bill of *The Lost Boys* and *Interview with the Vampire* on April 11. God, they've got some good stuff coming out. They do. Yeah, that's what they do. Congrats, Zach.
1: Vous avez quel âge 22 ans. C'est quand la dernière fois que vous avez dormi
0: Cette nuit, j'ai pas dormi, mais euh, mais la nuit d'avant, je crois que j'ai dormi.
1: Est-ce que vous avez un partenaire régulier
0: T'es bien, là J'aime ça. Pas
1: vraiment. Ça fait combien de temps que
0: vous vous prostituez Un certain temps. French
2: writer-director Camille Vidal-Naquet's sweaty debut film Sauvage follows a male sex worker in Strasbourg. French gay actor du jour, Félix Marito plays Leo, a young man who uneasily falls in with a group of sex workers who hustle along a particular stretch of road. Among trips to gay bars and a diverse array of professional sexual encounters, Leo drifts through his young adulthood, gently exploring his sexuality and perhaps his future in the process. Eloise, what did you <laughs> make of this film?
1: I liked it. I think it was a very good film, very solid in terms of its characterization and kind of portrayal of this particular kind of pocket of life, Mm -hmm. but it didn't do everything that I guess it sort of promised or set up in offering us this character who was kind of lost and then sort of had made a number of steps in his life to get to a certain point and kind of, um, you know, I guess better his situation. There was a number of promises in the film that that suggested he was was going to and I think um, towards the end it kind of, maybe it seemed as though the filmmaker just ran out of options and didn't quite know what to do. Like it was not kind of satisfying for me to watch where this guy went Mm -hmm. in the end Mm -hmm. Um, and there were a couple of possibly really interesting ways in which it could have maybe played with the incomplete presentation of, of plot, like where things are hinted at. Like there's that um, kind of guy who keeps cruising. Um, yeah, the strip, peonest. The peonest. yeah, the um, pianist. The pianist. Yeah, the pianist. And I thought it was a bit disappointing the way his kind of presence was always flagged. Like it, he seemed like a mystery, but the film almost kind of removed the mystery from him in, in the way that he kind of was announced.
2: That was an inc- curious motive in this film mm. because he sort of drifted in like the weather, like the it was sort of yeah no uh, like he's just a, so this guy basically comes in his car and he's like very well dressed and he plays genteel classical music at various points he comes to pick up people but um, one of the other uh, sex workers warns Leo that um, you know he's too depraved he's too much. You know,
0: don't go there. They, uh, the film asks you to take a lot on face value. Like, first of all, we don't get any background True. to Leo. We don't understand why he's drawn to this life, why he thinks this is a really great place to find love, which seems to be his main motivation. And when he does find it, it's this sequ- a lot of sequences of really of him struggling. So. I, I don't know. I, I first of all, I I kind of had to rewrite my review because I realized I was accidentally moralizing about mm. it. I was like, why would someone choose to do this? You know, rather than accepting that he's chosen to do that. I
1: quite liked that that there yeah, was no same. background that it just kind of took us there because it suggested that like we don't have necessarily any right to ask someone how they ended up being a prostitute Mm. or living on the streets or, or, you know, taking drugs, that kind of thing. Like we don't have any right to mm, to kind of know. Yeah, sure. This is what I
2: liked about the film because I was worried that it would descend into moralising at several points and it never does, Mm. although... I'm I not even sure it's in danger of that It sort of dares you to begin thinking that And then it will pull away And it doesn't end It ends up becoming like Almost like a sort of gentle portrait Of this yeah. main character yeah. And that's what I really like. I wonder yeah. whether I film.
1: missed something Or whether it just When he falls in love with this other guy I feel like what we saw of them Was their first encounter Do you agree? Yeah, I agree yeah. And there was nothing there That suggested That they'd fallen in love there was n- no suggestion of him kind of taking it too far with imagining he'd had this relationship with the other guy until he described it later and that was a kind of thing that I had trouble with because I, I feel like it wanted to kind of paint him as this really lonely guy who was just yearning for emotional closeness but it didn't do that well enough in kind of setting up their their relationship or friendship. Yeah,
0: yeah, I never quite believed it was more than a crush, but then he starts acting as though it's he's absolutely passionately in love with yeah, his Yeah, and he's, I think that, that rejecting him.
1: You know, if you couple that with the ending, which I felt was, you know, very predictable in a sense, which mm. is not necessarily a bad thing, but if you couple it with this, which I don't think took the emotional danger of his scenario far enough that it just turned it into a bit of a weaker portrait of... A man, where it could have maybe explored his emotional kind of turmoil a lot, mm. a lot more.
0: Mm. Yeah, I thought there was a lot of stylish, t- stylishness to like about this. I love the use of music. I really love the the way that when there were moments of violence, they felt really sudden and really, like quite really, really well done. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of uh, handheld camera out in the streets, but in, once we were inside in bedrooms and there were sex scenes, the camera was much more steady and that was the light was a, fair, a bit warmer, I think. Mm. Which kind of put me more, I guess, uh, closer to Leo. And I want to definitely call out Felix Moritad. Morato, who from B, who was also in BPM, mm. he was fantastic. Yeah. I was thought. he
1: in BPM? I knew that I recognised him. He Gosh, was great. his
0: eyes are incredible. Yeah, uh, he's having a bit of a moment. He's <laughs> also
2: yeah, he's also in um, MQFF in this other film, Boys. Right. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, which I'm seeing next week. Very excited. About, to
0: see. Also, I felt behind that we got a very green bookish look at the life of a sex worker. There was no mental illness. There was no like nobody seemed to be really really in trouble even though they all have very precarious lives. It felt like we touched on a bunch of characters but we never really got any depth to them and it was a bit more, it was, it was definitely I felt like meandered into the world of cliché. That's
1: true, that idea of like that you're only out is to find an old ugly man that then just all of a sudden came to the two main characters um, in that world. I mean clearly that was well, that was thought through as something to offer because then you had the parallels of the way that both of them Dealt with that situation, but I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I really didn't like that particular. Yeah, I thought it was going for authenticity
0: and didn't quite work. I would, have
2: but again, appreciated f- more depth. he doesn't. I mean, we, you don't want to. I don't want to spoil here, but again, it. I felt like that was seemingly daring you to think it would go down one path, mm. and then yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. It, it doesn't quite. <laughs> Um, and that's what I found interesting about the film is there were various little points where that happened. And there were a few little moments that I quite liked. Again, see so yeah, once you start isolating them and mentioning them, it, you can see how easily this could turn into a yeah. moralizing yeah. like when he goes to the doctor and like mm. he just like breaks down and hugs her. Like that was a beautiful, mm. tender yeah. little scene. Yeah. And that so I great. like that there's those little moments in there as well.
1: But there was the alternate doctor you know the other doctor who was an asshole yeah. because he very much tried to dictate like a proper way of life to this guy so you did i think in that sense have like oh you could be a good person or you could be like look at look at what not being a good person does to someone. You can scare them away from, like, um, trying to, I guess, integrate themselves into a a different part of society. Yeah. So it did kind of offer those two different things. And I thought that was, yeah, that was a little bit disappointing. I think if it was more of a stripped-back film, I really liked the guy and I really liked a lot of his interactions, but I feel like a little bit too much of it made it into, yeah, too much of a predictable kind Mm. of yeah. Maybe moralising narrative, as you guys are saying. Um, well, I think it
2: avoided that. Yeah, mm. I think it mm-hmm. touches on that without yeah. descending into it. Which is an interesting balance to strike, but I agree with you on that it is quite... It is ultimately quite predictable. I mean, yeah, I thought, I thought it was fine. I thought it was worth seeing for his performance. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, my God.
0: I can't wait to see more of yeah. him and other stuff.
1: It's true. Yeah. I, think, I think what I'm trying to say is maybe I, I liked the slice of life stuff and I disliked the giving it a coherent narrative yeah, yeah, kind sure, of structure. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, that's, I think, what I think overall mm. yeah, yeah. Um, about it. But, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, they're still playing at MQFF, so you can catch that should you be interested it's in Savage. My father had always said not to trust the stories about my uncle Monty.
2: But Monty was Montgomery Clift. There's nothing but stories. He wasn't anything like people think he was.
0: It is a tragic story. I never found that to be true.
1: There are accusations. Making Montgomery Clift is a documentary about, as the title suggests, the making of Montgomery Clift as an American actor and star co-directed by his nephew, Robert Anderson Clift, taking an investigative approach, interviewing some people who knew him and others involved in the industry, using some archival footage and film clips. This film is assembled as a pretty straightforward kind of approach to his life It challenges some of the um, mass popular rumours about Cliff's lifestyle and philosophy and because of that I think this doco offers a new perspective on the star's persona and on Hollywood's history overall because I think of Cliff's, you know, kind of integral part to so much of film history, acting theory and all of that.
0: Yeah, um, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with him, can you give us a little capsule of what he was in and what, you mm, know, what Maunty he was, why, why he's so worthy of this sort of. Education? He's
1: often kind of grouped um, with James Dean and um, Marlon Brando as like this. Um, you know, he had this very particular acting style. He was very representative of the Stanislavski sto- school. Is that what the name is? Stanislavski. Stanislavski, Stanislavski yeah. um mm. acting style. He's kind of famous for like a lot of clips, I suppose, like Red River. Famous for A Place in the Sun. Famous for being one of Elizabeth Taylor's best friends. He was in The Misfits, which I guess is kind of iconic because it was Marilyn Monroe and Clark Gable's last film.
0: Mm-hmm. Nuremberg?: mm-hmm. Nuremberg*. Yeah. See.
1: And he presents
2: yeah. a very different From here to eternity. sort of style of masculine film star, doesn't he? to someone
0: like John Wayne? Yes. Yes. Um, As he's pointed out. As he's pointed mm. out in the yeah.
2: film, mm. indeed.
1: Yeah, but he's like an extraordinarily beautiful man, mm. Um, mm. basically. And so he is very famous. He was not in that many films, I think, because the yeah. um profiled him... Two years ago, and I think it was only in fourteen films. You know, mm. which if you think about people with um, careers of longevity, yeah, in Hollywood, All that's that two no-
0: years of Juliette Binoche.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that's not a great deal of, of pictures that he mm. made. But yeah. I mean, as the documentary points out, he was very selective. He never signed a contract um with a studio you know you're often kind of I mean not when he was working the seven-year contract had kind of like passed by at this point um in a in a major way but he never signed a contract with the studio so he was never tied down um that kind of thing so he did have a very different approach he came from the theater I mean as a lot of these method actors did mm. um and so you know he was really quite unique in that regard
0: yeah. What did you make of this documentary? Anderson?
2: Um, well, what I found really interesting about this is so Robert Anderson Clift sort of sets out from the beginning. Um, he says, you know, there's this sort of conception of Montgomery Clift as undergoing the uh, what well, quote unquote the longest suicide in Hollywood history or something mm. like this, decades long. Ever since he, he has a car accident, yeah, it's and one
1: dec he dies one decade later.
2: Yeah, and then yeah. yes, he as a sort of the popular myth is that he dies one decade later. And, you know, he was an alcoholic and he was driven to you know, he he was tortured by living this double life of being a closeted bisexual man. Uh, you know, this is what drove him so anyway, to eventually um, you know, this bitter final decade of his life. Anyway, so Robert Clift says, no, no, this is or I'm i gonna you know, combat this and uncover the truth. Now what's really interesting about this film is and also what's kind of bizarre about it, maybe to people who aren't steeped in all of this, um, which is me before I went into <laughs> the film, um, is that he does this, he sort of goes to reframe this narrative by making use of all of these audio recordings and this whole family seem to be recording each other constantly. Yeah. So there's decades of material, like from Montgomery Clift recording things to Robert's, uh, mainly the main source is Robert's father. Um, what's his name? Brooks. Yeah, Brooks. Brooks. Such a good name. Brooks Clift. Why is that name? No, done? that's an American name. Uh, Brooks Clift's tapes. There's all of these sort of really interesting recordings of the family drama and the family conversations. And that mm, serves as like a... a Big basis of the material for the film, but it's also it's somewhat perplexing and sort of odd that this whole family was like this, and it does. I mean, he gets very caught up in certain things that, um, like just these these sort of semantics with his biographers, and I guess he's arguing had a broader impact. Directly misled or, um, yeah, in a misleading way, fed the popular myths around Montgomery Clift. But it does at times feel like he's going down very peculiar, finicky paths, if mm-hmm. that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I really agree with you. I, I mean, I don't, I feel like there was some stuff in this movie that he touched on that was like incredibly interesting like that brooks clift when he served in the army was like what a um, intelligence officer yeah, right at the front and line, that's yeah. why he kind of started recording people and why he had all of these tapes that were recorded without the subject's permission and everything and that's just kind of like dropped in as some revelatory piece of information in the middle of the film and then passed over and he gets on with Arguing with Patricia Bosworth again Like yeah. it's very <laughs> odd yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then there's a, a kind of another line You're right where he's like And Monty was recording everything as well um, But there's I feel like I mean I don't know I just feel felt disappointed by this film Because I felt very interested in the I guess specifics about what was wrong With Patricia Bosworth's biography Because I knew that there were problems And I knew that it was not well received And she's an incredibly famous biographer Particularly so I think for her Jane Fonda biography but i knew that there were kind of flaws with this montgomery Clift one and i didn't know exactly what so to kind of find those out was interesting but i would have been so much i feel like those things are maybe discoverable anyway and what would have been more interesting was finding out you know why he recorded everyone <laughs> yeah yeah like you know because it sets up like yeah. th- the, the popular myth is that he was tormented by being gay which you know i uh, was is not true because by all accounts otherwise he lived a fairly open bisexual life and he was never ashamed of it um and that that was just not one of the things preoccupying him so it sets that up as the main mystery and then tries to uncover it but i think the main mystery would be was there some insecurity in his life which meant he recorded everything and that's never maybe uncovered
0: yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I was pretty disappointed with this as well. I think there is such a huge wealth of audio mm. recordings and there was the, obviously he was really struggling for visual accompaniment because we get water lo- watermarked f- yeah. um footage repeated
1: repeated shot
0: ru- like multiple shots of him in water at, in the Bahamas something. There's a or bit something. where it
1: cuts between where it's got an audio recording of of Patricia Bosworth and Brooks Clift and it cuts during the duration which is like a 20 second Audio recording cuts between the same photographs as the two of them. It's so like boring and distracting, and like, don't cut so quickly because I'm trying to listen to the audio, and you're instead kind of pulling my eye away. Yeah. This yeah, it's weird strange. editing. Yeah, yeah.
0: So that, a lot of that I thought was really weak. Um, also the way that this is in MQFF and he's been established upfront as a queer icon. Like, he's pl- this is, film is played in other queer film festivals mm. around the world, and it pretty much isn't. It's pretty much about a family trying to rectify some sort of injustice to its ancestor, and so he's far far more interested in, like, you know, setting the record straight, you know, according to the family, rather than actually investigating Montgomery Clift. And I feel like Montgomery Clift is like you know, did, ro- you know, really ripe for rediscovery. He's kind mm. of overlooked a lot. I mean, and not a lot of people have seen a lot of his films, even though I'm sure you're really familiar with them but like mm. anders and i i mean i think i've seen the misfits and maybe mm. one of his other films mm-hmm. out of the 14. but when we get to stuff like judgment in Nuremberg and we get to see him actually in his craft i'm like this is brilliant i could watch like 90 minutes of this guy just rewriting his own scripts to make them better you know that and was fascinating these amazingly stuff, iconic it? films and these yeah. incredible scenes and just watching him at his art is was yeah. a brilliant yeah, but rather it didn't,
2: than this sort of family yeah, which, score settling in a way. Yeah, I it mean, is really... It's weird. trying to argue that this has got a broader point beyond just the family, you know, we're dealing with a cultural figure and, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And I understand that. But
0: at the same time, it did feel quite insularly... Yeah, it was so really niche and really got, yeah. like you were saying, like really went down some strange tangents. Ultimately, this should have been a podcast. I think, <laughs> like it would have made a brilliant podcast series. It would have made. Where are you? Um, I mean, the discovery,
1: <laughs> the discovery <laughs> of I mean, the, of yeah, yeah, yeah. the, um, the <laughs> discovery <laughs> of the Montgomery Cliff tapes comes in ten minutes before the end of yeah, the yeah, like yeah, it's, yeah. And that's kind of the main thing I think that this film has to offer is that everyone knew Brooks recorded a lot as they say in the beginning he recorded a lot and you know he used these tapes for for what have you because that was part of his like trying to recover montgomery cliff's you know legend before brooks died himself but yeah this discovery that seems like you know humongous is kind of a Post script.
0: Yeah, and we get maybe like 30 seconds or something of these amazing tapes that were discovered at the bottom of his suitcase. <laughs>
1: yeah. And it,
0: uh, Now that I'm it's thinking strange. about it, Mon-
2: Monty does end up being just more inscrutable or, or <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really mm. tell me anything.
1: I felt like the best bit was mm. the Judgment at Nuremberg yeah, bit, which was a really long clip and, like, it was the best bit. I mean, also it does kind of show, like, Cliff's uh, edits on the script, but it was great because we saw him acting yeah and, he's and we so saw him phenomenal yeah. like that's yeah. why cuz that, yeah with really skipped and over the early part of the his life and don't want the best bit of your documentary about someone to be them them themselves acting <laughs> yeah within, kind of.
0: without you <laughs> without you being in it i wish you really? could
1: go and watch the film anyway yeah yeah i was yeah i was a bit disappointed about this film i thought it was going to um really excite me
0: yeah Anyway, well, listeners, this is one is not showing at the – it doesn't have any more screenings at MQFF, but I'm pretty it might be available for download at some point in the future.
1: Yeah, it's been talked about for a number of years now, I think, so, you know, it, it should get out there.
0: Yeah. So has anyone seen anything else at MQFF? Hello.
1: <clears throat> well, I know I just ragged on the Montgomery Cliff documentary, which I'm really sad about, but I also saw um, the documentary Dykes Camera Action, directed by Carolyn I want to say her name is. I think that's what my handwriting says. Um, (laughs) Anyway, it's another film-related documentary kind of going back. It has a, a few clips at the beginning from classical Hollywood films like The Killing of Sister George. You know, it kind of is looking at the place of the lesbian in cinema. But what was really interesting was it interviewed a whole lot of filmmakers from the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, a lot of lesbians or queer women and a lot of these women talking about how they were straight and then when they were 30... I can't remember who it was, but a woman said she hadn't even heard the word lesbian until she was thirty, and then decided that you know she was one <laughs> um, because she realised that it was you know that it was something that was available to her. But it, I think really interestingly and very thoroughly kind of investigated the shift in visibility of these lesbian and queer stories throughout these later decades in the twentieth century, um, and it was very I think well done. Um, very attentive to its subject matter and really engaging. Only 60 minutes, and I, you know, it kind of got through so much. Um, and also, it, there was a, you know, uh, Barbara Hammer was interviewed on there, and there was a big uh, tribute to her filmmaking, which is amazing because she died like two days ago. At really? the age of 79. She did. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, that was really nice to see. They said, you know, she was really the pioneer because she made all, she, you know, she made. <laughs> films with dyke in the title kind of thing and she went and said you know no one else is going to tell these stories i have to do it and um so she did it in her film school at, in new york and yeah so that was like a really uh, much more satisfying documentary for me yeah okay right
0: um and listeners you can see that on uh, friday the 22nd at the jam factory
1: awesome recommend
2: Cool. And I will just do a quick shout-out to the opening night film Puppy Shulo, uh, which stars Matt Bomer as an L.A. weatherman. Matt Bomer, who I've never really seen act before. But, uh, except I know for that Ma- name. Uh, Magic Mike, okay. you know him from. And like, he's the internet's boyfriend and whatnot. Uh, anyway, he's, he's, um, he's uh, this L.A. weatherman who sort of has this um, crisis, uh, professional crisis, sort of this meltdown live on air because he's getting a bit sick of... Um, reading the same weather forecast it's LA <laughs> um, and um, and he's newly single so he um, anyway he engages a Mexican migrant worker to help do his renovations on his or do to paint the deck on his house and uh, so this sort of middle-aged man um, comes and gets to work and then Matt Bomer's character sort of has this, sort of prolonged meltdown around this guy and they sort it sort of becomes a buddy comedy almost romantic comedy and then there's this sort of reveal about halfway through and it actually becomes a quite bittersweet emotional character study I really loved it it was a ride it was a ride and a half but in a great way and a quick shout out to Sorry Angel which I saw at MQFF for the third time uh, with Joanna Dimitia. <laughs> I think with Joanna Dimitia for the third time too. Um, could, I think because, this
1: was maybe her fourth, wasn't oh, it? I thought she'd seen it three. anyway. Probably,
2: possibly. No, no, John, uh, anyway, John. so this was um, played at Myth last year, which is why we've seen it. It's a wonderful film from Christophe Honoré about a late 30-something writer with AIDS in uh, 1990s Paris who, as one of the characters says, he compartmentalises his life almost to the extreme. Um, and he's the, the main focus of the film is a relationship he has with a younger man from a region, rural area outside outside of Paris. It's just a wonderful, beautiful um, film. It deals with quite heavy subject matter, but in a very sort of delicate, yeah, very nice kind of way, not a leaden way whatsoever. That's playing, I think, is also... As part of the French Film Festival So I believe Palace
1: I should go to yeah, it Yeah, Palace
2: Palace's granny a few times Recommend it Jo compares it to a novel in structure Which I find a very interesting mm. comparison um, A
0: woman who knows a lot about both of these
2: things She does indeed yeah. She does indeed So yes, that's Sorry Angel
1: cool. cool Well, we'll see you MQFF next At closing night, I believe With yes. Kristen Stewart and Laura Dern Come say hi pals Yeah, yeah
2: come say hi yeah, uh, playing JT Leroy
0: which is such an interesting oh my god the premise for this film is yes because I
2: remember watching this whole drama unfold so I'm very mm. excited to uh, watch this film
0: yes uh, and that brings us to the end of episode 60 thank you very much for listening you can get extra thanks from us by throwing some stars our way on iTunes that would be great rate, review, subscribe we appreciate all of these things you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at cultural capital podcast we're on Twitter at the cult cap pod and you can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs.
1: I'm at Eloise Lowruss.
0: How many think you're great?